0: All right, if you would please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29, we're continuing in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 16. We started at the beginning of Moses' sermon last week, beginning part of chapter 29, now we're continuing chapter 29, verse 16, where it reads, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt. And how he came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God. To go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant... Blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger. And wrath, all the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Covenant Lord, Maker, Redeemer, Friend, our Husband, all of these, we would be more committed to you. And there are some in our midst who wouldn't even be able to say that. Yet, O Lord, by another means, from another angle. Lord, would you capture our hearts? Would you capture our commitment? Would you make us more steadfast, relying on you? Would you increase our faith? Draw us close another way, oh Lord. Tonight we pray, because we so need your spirit to work in this way. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. As I'm sure you know, uh, human beings are complicated bundles of motivation. We have all kinds of motivation for everything we do. Some of them are good motivations, some are bad, some are high motivations, some are low motivations, and you can even see this when you do something as simple as take your dog for a walk. Whenever you put your coat on and your boots on, take out your dog, you probably have all kinds of motivations for doing that. Like maybe you just had a bad motivation. You, you just like seeing your dog growl at the neighbor's kids. Maybe you have a practical motivation. You just don't want your dog to leave a mess in your living room. Maybe you have the noblest of motivations. You're walking your dog because you love them, and you just want to make them happy. Uh, The point is, we're all of us, a complicated bundle of motivations, and we see this in our passage in chapters 29 and 30. I want you to remember chapters 29 and 30 make up a long sermon. Moses has just finished laying out the whole covenant at the end of chapter 28. Now he's calling God's people to be fully committed to that covenant. And so last week, we heard Moses First reason for us to commit, it was God's kindness. He was saying, well, God's done so much for his people and rescuing them, leading them, protecting them. And he had a whole laundry list of reasons. And he's saying, well, why wouldn't you want to commit to a God like that? That's a really good reason. He's been so kind to you. Well, this week we're focusing on Moses' second reason, his second motivating factor. And and it's this. It's dangerous not to commit to the Lord. That's the second reason. So we'll take up our passage tonight under three headings. First, we'll talk about the danger of not committing. Then we'll talk about the consequences of not committing. And then we'll hear the Lord's call to commit again, but from a different angle in Moses' sermon. So first point, the danger of not committing. So we're talking about the danger of not committing to the Lord and not committing to his covenant. And the danger of not committing is just this. It's idolatry. That's the danger, Uh, which should make sense because if you don't commit yourself to God, you're always by default committing to something else because human beings by our very nature we're made to be committers to something. And so the first thing Moses has done in this passage is he shows us sort of our subtle descent into idolatry. And it's this. First, there's just innocent exposure to idolatry. He says in verse 16, you know how he lived in the land of Egypt and how he came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you've seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone of silver and gold. And he's saying, well, you know about all these idols. You saw you lived around them. You saw them. You passed through nations that have these. And then he has two interesting words to describe these idols. Uh, the root of the first word means something like hated. ESV says detestable. It could be abominable. The root of the second word, that word for idols, is related to the word for excrement. So he's literally calling the idols abhorrent little piles of dung, essentially. But he's saying, well, but you all came into contact with them. You know these idols. And so, first, there's just this innocent exposure. And then, second, The people's hearts start to turn away from God. Verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God. Once upon a time, you love the Lord, you followed the Lord, you're committed to the Lord, now not so much. Second step, third step, their hearts start to turn towards something else. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord your God to go serve the gods of those nations. Remember, the human heart has to commit to something. If it's not committed to God, it's going to give itself to something else. But then forth comes the self-justification. Verse 19, the same man whose heart is turned away from God, turned towards something else. Verse 19, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. Saying, I shall be safe, or in Hebrew, I shall have shalom, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Here's the thing. The thing is that whenever people commit themselves to something that's not God, they know it's wrong on some level, at least deep down. So here's what people have to do. They have to convince themselves that it's okay. So like Romans says, when a person starts to worship the created thing instead of the creator, they have to suppress the truth. That they're doing the wrong thing. They have to make their thinking futile, Paul says. They have to darken their hearts. You actually see this all the time in our culture. People don't just want their sins tolerated anymore, do they? They want you to approve of it. And you know why that is. It's so they can feel better about it. Which leads us to our fifth step. We had the self-justifying step. Now the fifth step is the spread. The spreading of idolatry. Verse 18 calls these people... A root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. He's literally calling them, in Hebrew, he's calling them hemlock and wormwood. So this is a poetic way to talk about people that are, they're the root of society and they're, they're spreading idolatry to other people. They're the taproot of poison ivy, you could say. It's saying that these people, they spread an idolatry that kills people like a spiritual hemlock. It kills them because he's separating them from the source of life himself. These people spread an idolatry that embitters people like spiritual wormwood, uh, embitters people because it cuts people off from the source of all joy. Verse 19 says what seems to be an ancient little proverb, the ESV translates it pretty well, it says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Seems to be talking about the effect of idolatry, what idolatry does. Uh, Idolatry can infect the moist, that would be the spiritually alive, the trees by the running water, and it can infect the dry, the withered, the, the dying. And idolatry leads to consequences for the entire community, moist and dry alike. We get an idolatrous community and we all suffer the consequences of that. So what a warning this is. This is what happens when hearts start to drift away From a commitment to the Lord, they start to attach to something else. There's a slow death that follows while people just go down justifying themselves, and they take other people down with them. Moses knew this was a huge danger for the people he was talking to. It wasn't long before Deuteronomy was written that this people committed themselves to idols not far from where they were standing. They're standing on the plains of Moab. And in Numbers 25, we hear about how they worshipped Baal Peor, along with new Moabite wives, and how the Lord killed 24,000 of them for doing that. And so Israel needed this warning, and we need this warning. This is still an enormous danger for us. We're exposed to all kinds of idolatry. It's really the taproot of all our sin. It's all around us. It has its effect. You you see people that start to give themselves to things that you're drawn to, and your heart starts to say, "Mm, hmm, looks good. I'll say, uh, for me, it was always video games, so when I had a friend who had a brand new, souped-up computer, the ability to just give themselves to a a new game, and that influence used to beckon to me, call to me, wouldn't this be great? Give yourself to this, and So we're exposed to idolatry. Our hearts start to shift off of God onto something else. Because it's always easier to give ourselves to things we can see than an infinite God that we can't see. And the things that we can see, they promise great pleasure. They promise immediate gratification. So our hearts start to drift into idolatry. Then when they do, have you ever caught yourself justifying yourself? Your conscience starts to say, well, I don't know about this, yogi. Uh, this doesn't seem right. You want this too much. This is too big. You've given yourself to this. But then comes out that little defense attorney in your head. Captured in cartoons, I guess, with the angel and the devil on either shoulder. It'll be fine. It's not a big deal. You know, everybody's doing it. You know, it's actually good because of XYZ. I heard a preacher say once, I think he's right. He said, as soon as you find yourself debating with yourself, you've, you're probably already on the wrong track. You've probably already lost the battle. And then, God forbid, we should ever bring other people with us into idolatry. God forbid, we should ever be roots of poison and bitterness. Because, make no mistake, idolatry is destructive. It can destroy a person, it can destroy a family. It can destroy a church. It can destroy a denomination. You know, we, even here, we could easily put, give ourselves to money, give ourselves to comfort over Jesus. We could suffocate our usefulness here. We could easily seek our own egos, uh, seek our own security. We could watch our church family's love grow cold. So Moses is showing us there's a danger here. He said, I want you to commit to the Lord. I want you to commit to his covenant." Here's the danger. The danger is idolatry. It's the danger for the people of God. And he's exhorting us to commit ourselves to God over the idols that are all around us. So that's our first point. That's the danger of not committing to the Lord. Now let's talk about the consequences of not committing. Because Moses isn't done with us yet. He's still got us by the collar. Uh, not only does he want to show us the danger of not committing, he wants to show us the consequences that will come if we don't commit to the Lord. And, and this makes sense. It makes sense that there's consequences for this. If, is it any wonder if a man faces consequences for cheating on his wife? Say, no, that's no wonder. Is it any wonder when a man faces consequences for committing treason against his country if he found another country he likes more? No. Now multiply that times a million... There are massive consequences for cheating on God. So Moses lays out all kinds of consequences for idolatry, starting at verse 20, moving on through this whole passage. And they're stiff. They are hard consequences. First, God says, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. It doesn't mean if he repents, God won't forgive him. But this is the man that's already justifying himself. This is the man that's saying, I'm going to go on in the stubbornness of my heart. As long as this person is happily committed to something other than God, he's in trouble. Second, God says, I'll be angry. He says, uh, verse 20, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. You just pause and think for a moment of what it means for God to be angry with you. God's wrath burns hot against people who cheat on him. Third, God says he'd put all of his punishments on him. Verse 20, all the the curses written in this book will settle upon him. You remember all those curses? We looked at like 66 verses of curses a couple weeks ago. ones that made my toes curl. He says this again a couple times. Verse 21, in accordance with all the curses of the covenant. or Or in verse 27, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. He's making sure you know all of them. Fourth, God says he'll blot out his name. That means... Their legacy is gone. means they're completely forgotten. That's a horrible thing in any day. would have been especially awful for the Israelites who are staking everything on a, a claim in the land, on their name being carried down through the ages, into eternity. Fifth, God says in verse 21, He says, I will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity. That word for calamity is the word ra'ah. It's the word for evil. It's the word for misery. He's talking about earmarking these people as special recipients of the evils of this life. Special recipients of misery. Singled out for that. Six, God talks about burning up their land. Verse 22 says, the Lord has made it sick. He's bringing plague. And the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt. Nothing sown, nothing growing. He says he'll make their land. This is the promised land. He says he'll make that land desolate, like Sodom, like Gomorrah. And then seventh, God says, this is a little more subtle, he says he'll exile them, kick them out. Verse 28, the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land. He's saying, I'll kick them out like I kicked out the Canaanites. I'll reverse the deliverance from Egypt. You hear, all, you hear these seven things he says he'll do, the seven big consequences of this idolatry, and you think these are unimaginably horrible consequences. And then to add greater effect, uh, Moses paints a picture of future generations standing there in this land, flabbergasted. They're saying, what in the world happened here? Why did this happen? And he tells you the answer. The answer is clear. Verse 25, it's because they abandoned the covenant. Verse 26, they went and served other gods, turned away from God, and they turned to idols, God wants his people to commit to him, and when they don't, he has really serious consequences for them. Of course, you realize God's word on this was so certain that he did everything he wrote here. Uh, Over and over again, Israel experienced anger, experienced curses, but then some 800 some odd years later, he brought all of these curses. He even uprooted them from the land and reduced the land to ash and such a stunningly accurate prediction of the future that liberal scholars usually say, they say well there's no way this could have been written back in Moses' day. They say this despite the fact that all the evidence runs counter to their claim. And yet even though this passage does have predictive power at its root, it's actually not a prophecy, it's primarily just a promise. God's giving a promise. This is a promise of what God would do if his people committed their hearts somewhere else. And all you're seeing here is God always keeps his promises. So at the end of the second point, let's just pause a moment and apply all of this to ourselves. I think our temptation here might be to just take a deep sigh of relief and say, oh, I'm so glad this wasn't written for me. I mean, this is all just old covenant stuff, right? Well, Not so fast. Remember that the new covenant doesn't remove the old covenant. It deepens the old covenant. It enriches the old covenant. So I hasten to say that all of these consequences, they still exist for those who don't commit to God. They're just bigger now. Because when you read about God's burning anger, you read about all of his curses settling on a person, When you read about a person being singled out, isolated, forgotten, blotted out, uh, miserable. When you read about all this burning and exile from the promised land, you know what you're reading. You're reading a little glimpse into the reality of hell. And so, yeah, absolutely. Second motivation that Moses gives for us to commit to the Lord, for us to commit to the covenant is that. We might escape the pit of hell. Moses is telling us if if we don't commit in faith to the Lord, we're in danger of idolatry and idolatry that leads to hell. Now, at this point, a lot of people might balk and they say, Ah, get out of here, Pastor Rosser. Fear has no place as a motivator amongst the people of God. I've actually even heard immature preachers say, they say, you know what? The only real motivation for a Christian is grace. That's it. It's the only motivation. But then here's this. I could point to you to lots of New Testament texts that parallel this text, like Matthew 7.21, 1 Corinthians 6.9. Listen, Hebrews 10 is explicitly written to Christians, to members of the covenant, and, and it warns them, listen carefully, it warns them, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses Dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want you to see. Hebrews makes the same argument. If it was this bad for God's people back in Deuteronomy, imagine how bad it would be with all the revelation that we have, with all of Christ that we have, how bad it would be for us in the New Testament if we were to turn away. And so, no, it's not fear-mongering to tell sinners to flee from the wrath to come. That is not fear-mongering. Many people come to Christ because they take his warning seriously. Your pastor is one of those people who came to Christ because he took his warning seriously. It's not fear-mongering to tell people who like to straddle the line, I'm with Jesus today, I'm not with Jesus tomorrow, I'm with Jesus today, I don't know. It is not fear-mongering to tell those people what will happen to them if they never ultimately commit. I remember when I was a kid, my mom called me into the living room to watch an episode of Oprah about how not to be kidnapped And needless to say, that was traumatizing for me. Uh, But never did I think that my mom was unloving because she wanted to warn me about people that want to steal me from my family. Never have I thought God unloving because he wants to warn me about things which want to steal me from his family. As Christians, it's okay. It's okay to be motivated by stick and carrot, by the goodness and severity of God, the glories to come and the potential horrors to come. Because all along we know, we know this, we know this in the back of our heads as Christians, we're confident that any person who's really committed to him, imperfectly so, but really committed to him, any person who believes in Jesus and bears fruit in keeping with repentance, he says, that person has no need of fear. So, let's start to conclude. At the end of this this part, I'm preaching many sermons on a sermon, but at the end of this part of Moses' sermon, you're just left with the same old call of all of Deuteronomy. It's a call to commitment, more commitment, a call to obey the covenant of the Lord. It's actually just kind of interesting how Moses weaves this in here, this call. Uh, Throughout our time tonight, we've been hearing a, a pretty hard warning about the future, You've been hearing about things that are really too big and terrible for you to process. And it's at this point that the word of God comes and says, in a sense, okay, don't worry about all that. Don't concern yourself with the Lord's inscrutable purposes. Don't lose peace thinking about all the infinite mysteries of God's plan. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, he says. Instead, concern yourself with what you do know. The Lord has told you, this is what you should be concerned with. The things that are revealed. The things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever. Why did the Lord give us these things? Why did he give us a covenant document? What That we may do all the words of this law. This is really good advice for us, especially for us. We're thinkers. We're ponderers. We want to really explain and understand all the deep things of God. And and that's fine. That's good. But tonight the Lord's telling us there are just some things that you cannot know. You may never know exactly where evil came from or how it came to be. You may never know how God is one and three at the same time. You may never know how free will and predestination perfectly harmonize with each other. And that's okay. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But there are so many other things he has made known to you. He says, these are the things that belong to you. You may do his will. He's made known to you the way to heaven, revealed through Jesus Christ. He's made known to you the way of love, revealed in the law of Christ. He says, focus on those things. Do those things. That's what commitment looks like. And at the end of all this, I just want you to hear the Spirit's call. Spirit's calling you to commit more of your faith, more of your love to God above all others. Let the listener understand you commit yourselves to so many other things. He wants all your commitment. He must increase. Those things must decrease. And it's a call to show that love. Show that love for him by obeying the words of his law. We do this because of all he's done for us. That's what last week's message was, and we do this in order to avoid the dangers of idolatry and its unspeakable consequences. That's tonight's message, and there are two more to come in the coming weeks. Heavenly Father, we're sure as we even heard this word tonight, each of our minds flickered a moment to the different idolatries that consume our hearts. We're so sorry for that, Lord. How unworthy that is. How sinful that is. Disgraceful. Please forgive us. But Lord, at the same time, we because of the power of your spirit we've been singing about, because of your son who's purchased us back, we do commit ourselves to you because you've committed yourself so wholly unto us. Lord, we've committed ourselves to you. Help our Lack of commitment. Meet us here by your spirit. Lord, impress these things deeper into our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.